Hello, welcome to the New Stack Makers, a podcast where we talk about at scale application development, deployment, and management. LaunchDarkly is a feature management platform that empowers all teams to safely deliver and control software through feature flags. By separating code deployments from feature releases, LaunchDarkly enables you to deploy faster, reduce risk, and iterate continuously. Wow, pancakes in space. I kind of like it. You know, would would that be something where like the like the uh the spatula could be like the spaceship or something like that and flipping pancakes from planet to planet? I'm liking this theme for trajectory and I'm really excited about our pancake breakfast today. We are so so looking forward to this conversation. The topic is why DevOps isn't 100% working for most teams and how to fix it. And our guests today include Cody D. Arklin, Principal Technical Marketing Engineer at Launch Darkly, Rachel Stevens, Senior Analyst at Redmonk, Steve George, Chief Operating Officer at Weaveworks, and Margaret Francis, President and COO at Armory. I am so excited for this. It's always fun to get together for pancakes. I brought some of mine in. You know, I, I'm going to hold off on eating them because, you know, you know, you got to be careful when you're eating on set. I've learned that the hard way. Um, could I just ask a question? Um, Rachel, I understand you actually were the smartest one of us all. What, like, what, what, what's up with your pancakes? I have two small children and it's a weekday morning, so there was absolutely no chance of me making pancakes, but I have a really lovely plate of pancakes that I ordered. So, you know. And let's give a shout out to the restaurant again. What is it? It's called Snooze. They do like kind of cult pancakes in the Denver area. So definitely. Well, well, Snooze, thank you for participating in our podcast today. Your pancakes, I'm sure, are awesome. So, um, does can anyone pass me, um, you know, pass me uh, syrup or butter or anything? Margaret, could you pass? Could you pass it up a little bit up to? Okay, that's okay. Kind of since we're doing product placements, I'm kind of a maple syrup maniac, and while this is my everyday, it's real maple syrup as opposed to some kind of corn syrup with dye business. I love this brand, Run Amuck, and they cure a lot of their maple syrup in like bourbon barrels. Kind of. Pancake to cocktail motion. Sexy. Wow. Pancakes yeah. to cocktails. I like that. I like that. So who else has something to share here? Cody? I locked, I locked in the breakfast. Kids were really, really happy with pancakes this morning. A little sausage action. Little, little flapjack. Feeling good. Wow. That sounds delicious. And how about... Steve, what do we got? Yeah, so I don't know if you can see, but here, these are some pancakes. I'm in France, so I'm actually in the Alps, which is why I've got my Alps map behind me. And I don't know if you can see, but this is some French mountain honey. I don't know if I can get that on the camera. There you go. Some French mountain honey to go with mine. Wow. <laughs> we have restaurant pancakes from Denver. We have bourbon and pancakes from, from somewhere in the Bay Area. Wow, this is pretty good. Joe, do you got anything today? <laughs> nope. <laughs> Thanks, though, Joe. Joe Jackson is our man, is our executive editor, and Joe is going to be helping field the questions today. 
and just participating with questions that he may have of his own. So let's just get started. Now, I want to just let everyone out there know that we love your questions, 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 questions. You know, do you have any questions based on the conversation we're having? We want to hear, you know, your questions about DevOps teams. How are you working with DevOps teams? And what, what changes have you had to make with DevOps teams? These are the kind of questions uh, that we're, at, we're getting answered today. And the question really is, you know, why, why aren't DevOps teams working for most teams? What, what, what's happening in your uh, neck of the woods that you can maybe ask a question about? So let's just get started with our questions. And so I want to just start it off maybe just with a very, you know, simple one about, um, uh, you know, what we're seeing in the world. I mean, workloads and applications are shifting to the cloud. That's no surprise. We're seeing a real requirement for better software delivery because as we well know, it can be uh, all kinds of issues can start popping up now that we have just, uh, uh, you know, latency issues to think about almost more than the app, you know, app and services going down. We've seen from Gartner that, you know, through the 2023, 90% of DevOps initiatives will fail to fully meet expectations according to Gartner. But I'm, the question really is why? So maybe I can go uh, to the first question, you know, to, to Cody, um, you know, how have trends changed the way DevOps teams work. I mean, I remember, I remember asking someone at O'Reilly Conference 2007. I'm like, "What is DevOps?" And the guy said, "Oh, it's a culture." And that's what I think. What we've heard ever since, Cody. What What are your thoughts? What are the trends? What's going on out there? Yeah, I think what what's really interesting is when you look at. I think we're at a really cool time of of DevOps because we've we've been in this like kind of like theory crafting stage for a very long time where we've been kind of building the foundation of what DevOps actually becomes. But we're at this time where like tooling and uh, general like cultural approach to it has reached a level where people can actually start executing on things. And I think we've seen that over the probably the past year. And I think things like, like the pandemic have sped that up as people are kind of operating more, more independently. Um, I think an interesting trend getting like super specific is I see tooling coming back around as, as a, a very important part of this thing we moved past like the whole waterfall versus agile thing and we're looking at how do we use kind of tools to solve problems for things i think we have like a great a great set of tools on the, on this panel that are great examples of taking larger bigger problems and breaking them up into smaller things that are more solvable um, and i think that tooling has gotten to a place where we can actually use those things more effectively so I, when i when i talk to people in this space i come from a pretty ops heavy background um so when i talk to like former colleagues, people who are still out solving solving problems in, in enterprise, a lot of them, the, the first questions we ask aren't, how do I get into DevOps? It's, hey, what tools should I start to learn? What things should I focus on? What what areas should I should I give attention to? Infrastructure as code, you know, things like that. Um, but I think it's 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 really interesting to see how that that tooling approach is is starting to become a way to create standardization inside of businesses, ways to um, ways to solve problems the same way across an entire team at great scale, because that's how you create scale. I just, I think tooling is making a big kind of comeback around now. So tooling is making a comeback. Rachel, is, are to, are, is, that, is that your perspective? Is, is tooling making a comeback? Are we seeing a lack of tools needed for what we're seeing today in the developer community? 
There's two parts to that answer. I, I think one of the parts very much augments what Cody is saying in that um, I, I think that when people really talk about DevOps is a culture and therefore it's all about people and process over tooling and people can kind of um, say have that skepticism that someone who's trying to sell you DevOps tooling is, is kind of um, glossing over the fact that you have to have that cultural part. And tools, I think, are a really important part of augmenting and building your culture. You can't change the culture all by yourself. You have to have the tooling to support it. So I 100% agree with that philosophy. At the same time, one of the things that we are seeing a lot at Redmonk is that people are just really struggling with the fragmentation of the developer tool chain overall. And so it yeah. can be a bit of a, a developer experience gap is the phrase that one of my colleagues has used to describe this, of trying to get something that's written on your laptop all the way to production. And the number of tools and things that have to be integrated to make that happen can be really daunting for a lot of companies. So I think on one hand, tools are absolutely essential. On the other hand, managing all of those tools and figuring out how to put that tool chain all together is something that a lot of companies are struggling with. There's a lot of options out there, aren't there, Margaret? So there's this fragmentation, this dev experience gap, you know, what's the responsibility of the vendor in that case? I mean, you're working with Armory and you're, you're the president of Armory, for goodness sake. So I, know, I actually just even made a live pancake. So my house smells amazing, even if I won't get to eat it till later. Are you on um, TikTok? Are you on TikTok? Because that's like, that's like, that's like second level right there. It's, it's a continuous delivery of pancakes while talking, taking it to the next level of, you know, Wednesday morning difficulty. Um, so, you know, yeah, I'm from a vendor, so I'm pretty sure I'm supposed to be using this time to like sell the thing that I do. And that's frankly not useful. Um, it's not useful because Cody and Rachel are, are spot on. Like teams are really struggling with how they're going to put together like consistent pass to production. What is the best kind of set of tools to standardize on? How can that possibly work for like all of the teams in the enterprise or even just the ones you're like adjacent to? that contribute to the same application that, that you support, where, you know, we're in a microservices world where everybody owns their own service, their services all contribute to the app, the teams all work slightly differently, standardization, standardization is hard. So it's kind of, um, it's kind of a, a little bit of a chaotic moment in DevOps, but I think that what I see is when a team gets into a group, like they actually are able to standardize on a tool chain and a set of practices, they really do get the velocity benefits and consistency benefits that they were looking for when they chose those tools to begin with. I do see it. It's just not global yet. Steve, is this the moment of chaos that we've all been waiting for? <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think, I mean, my perspective uh, for us at WeaveWorks, we're very Kubernetes centric. And so, you know, we see we've been talking a lot about GitOps, which we see as an instantiation of DevOps. And I think we, we're seeing the same thing that the others are commenting on. Um, I mean, in the wider con the, the wider DevOps context, I've always liked that kind of calm definition, you know, culture automation, lean measurement sharing. I, re I really like that as a way of thinking through that problem. One of the things you notice with, you know, you referred at the start that the Gartner study, one of the things I think is true is that different companies and teams have different goals. And so often they struggle with exactly which parts of DevOps are important to them de determining their goals. And, and I think in the Kubernetes world, the, the best instantiation of this we see is teams that started off wanting to deploy applications faster and they land up building Kubernetes platforms for extremely long periods of time. Um, and so 
I think for us, we talk about GitOps as a way of having a, a journey towards you know that that DevOps outcome, whatever that outcome is that you want. Um, and I think that that's you know you can whether it's Kubernetes or some other method that you're using. I think keeping that in mind that you've got a beginning goal that you were trying to get to, and then you know, moving towards that step by step and measuring whether this is working for you or not. I think that's the real trick um, of successful projects. Um, and then, you know, the tooling and the culture comes um, as part of that successful mix. Journey? Did you say journey? Don't stop I believing? Do. Oh my gosh. What? <laughs> Talk well, about in a metrics-driven way, in a <laughs> metrics-driven way, right? Not, not, it's not, you know, it's not a, a, a never-ending journey, but definitely something that you can iterate and progress towards, I think. That's a, that's a good way of putting it. Now, Joe, what do we got out there? Who, who's asking questions? Well, we got a real good one from uh, one of the listeners uh, who references the Dora report. Now, this is the state of the DevOps report that comes out every year. The last report noted that... Uh, uh, there, there, there's a lot of discussion around the differences between DevOps and site reliability engineering. That's a topic we've been seeing a lot lately. So where does DevOps stop and the SRE begin? Oh, that's such a good question. That's such a good question. Who's going to take it? I think from like an academic perspective. <laughs> so I, I think um, one of the things that was interesting about the DORA report this year is that they um, changed some of their language. So they kind of have that operational metric that they have done, which they previously were calling availability. And they have shifted that this year to call it reliability, which is kind of a broader and more encompassing set of concerns beyond just availability. But it's also latency and performance and kind of the general state of the app on the operational side. And I think from one sense, that's kind of just the, like the prerequisites that you kind of need to have in place in order for DevOps to be effective. Like you, I, I think like SRE is kind of the implementation of DevOps. Like DevOps is getting everything through the pipeline and SRE is having the platform that can run it. But I would love to hear pe people who are actually doing the technical work. Um, if you have perspectives, that would be great. Cody's yeah. given Cody's given a thumbs up. I, I think you're I think you're spot on. I, I think that that lines up perfect. I think that ultimately like if I if I get very specific, SRE is the role that you that you hire, and DevOps is the the set of like culture and approaches that that SRE engineer is going to implement as part of their role. Now, there's a whole bunch of SRE specific things that they bring to the table as well, and lessons they've learned, and, and so on and so forth. But I think that like that that DevOps is going back to where we started this whole conversation around like the culture side and, and kind of like those general approaches. I think that DevOps is that general that viewpoint, the way you're looking at the problems you're trying to solve. And the SRE is the person generally like implementing it. I think there's like a, that's like my formal answer. There's a snarky side where people oftentimes like attach to job titles and they'll be like, I'm the DevOps engineer at place or I'm the SRE at place. Um, I think that that's another way you can look at it where they do create different roles for those. But I generally see those ending up being very similar, similar groups that are chasing similar problems anyways. I just think that ultimately like the DevOps thing is more of a, more of a culture approach and a way we tackle the big problems that we're trying to solve. I, I would just... even add to that, that um, I think sometimes we give things names so that we can normalize the way that we talk about them and recognize how important they are. And I've actually, I've seen, seen a lot of title migration um, over the, the last like decade or so. So now sometimes people who are doing what I would categorize as SRE type tasks are just engineers. They're just engineers and they view this as part of their job description because we've so normalized 
how important the culture of DevOps is, that we don't have to even give it the name anymore. Um, and we tend to name it when it's important for us to foreground it in defining the actual work that our, our engineers, our practitioners, and our, and, our, and our builders are actually doing every day. Live from the kitchen, Margaret. I like that. You know, one of the things that I uh, that I'm curious about is basically what Cody says is like, you know, you know, if you really, if you want to get a high paying job, you call yourself you can call yourself a DevOps engineer, and you can you know be in the running. You know, and of course you got to be good enough to, to get the job. But I always thought that SREs are focusing on. You know, they're like the ones like watching everything. They're making sure like, you know, as a DevOps team is building out, you know, software and services, you know, they, they're focused on the delivery mechanism. And then the SRE is like making sure that the systems are resilient. And if they need to like make sure that the, you know, that, that there needs to be kind of some change in the DevOps, you know, workflow or, or process. And they can say, hey, there's something going wrong here. Is, is that a, you know, is, is that a, is that a way to look at it from your perspective, Steve, or do you have other thoughts? I mean, I think SRE is, if you follow the, the sort of classical SRE text from Google, it's a, it's an opinionated way of particularly running a large number of services at scale. And, and that's what it really speaks to. I mean, it's very, it's measurement centric. It's developer-centric in the sense of, you know, automation, which Cody was referring to. And I think those are really important aspects. And it fits within a particular type of pipeline that works for teams where you have a need to, you know, have a, have a team that is dealing with a platform that is keeping that platform capable. And then you have services running on that and individual services teams associated. And you're at that scale where you need that kind of platform capability and that ability to keep automating and running the platform at scale. I think, you know, DevOps, there's very, DevOps is less opinionated. It's, you know, I would say SRE and DevOps are really part of the same thing. Uh, you know, but I think really kind of with DevOps, it's less opinionated about the specifics about how you implement that within your team context. Ultimately, DevOps is saying, bring dev and ops teams together and improve communications, tooling, use some of the, you know, they're all the same contemporary capabilities. Whereas I would say SRE is very much something that I talk to teams which are operating at quite large scale about, and then, and they've reached a point and, and this, you see this in all platforms and in all technology areas where when you reach sufficient scale, you land up taking generalists and then re-specializing them at different levels. And SRE is a particularly opinionated specialization uh, view of how you, how you scale. I do like that, uh, just to back up Steve, I really like the, uh, the way of framing that around the idea that like the, the SRE side of that is very opinionated because that is true, right? There, there are things that SREs tend to very much gravitate towards from a process, metrics, tool chain, not, not so much tool chain in the sense of like what product I use, but the realm I live in, um, SREs are very generally very specific in what they're, what they're chasing, whereas DevOps is really like a series of practices that you can kind of mix and match out of uh, at times. So I, I really like that framing, Stu. Awesome. I, I do too. And I agree that it's like a scale function where you, you have to develop that differentiation and specialization when you hit a certain point of scale and the individual teams can no longer have kind of total ownership of their service without providing like a more platform view where a number of different services have to be managed by different teams. And um, I, think, I think that point happens in every org at a different scale inflection point, but it's good to be mindful about when you are changing the org to suit your business purposes and how you do it. Okay. 
I believe we do have another question or even, I think it may even look like a statement. Joe, what do we got? Well, uh, yes, Ethan Waldo had uh, uh, put forth a challenge that any DevOps team, it would, any DevOps team to rebuild their entire infrastructure uh, without making any modifications within six months. Um, which is, there's a lot of interesting things happening here. To what extent do you feel that uh, uh, DevOps success can be hindered by legacy software? How about we go ahead? Uh, I, I guess the goal, I, I think in my mind, is not to have your infrastructure stay static for half a year at a time. I, 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 I don't think that we, we want to be challenging people. I, I think that's part of the premise is that we, we want to make sure that we are building flexible infrastructure and resilient infrastructure. And so as we have new security vulnerabilities, as we're advancing our application, as we're making kind of progress towards delivering customer value, your infrastructure is inherently going to shift as you do that. So I think part of it is like, I, I would love to hear kind of the WeaveWorks perspective on GitOps and, and how that um, enables you to like build and have kind of declarative infrastructure. I think that's part of it, but I don't think the goal is to have static infrastructure. Yeah, that doesn't make sense to me. Like, like, what if your stove, you could only use it every six months, you know? And like, so like the whole time you're preparing to make pancakes, you know, for uh, that one opportunity. I mean, I mean, that's kind of a, that's kind of a stretch, I know, but. There's, a, there's an interesting thing here on like the way I'm, I'm used to like when I was in, when I was at the enterprise before I crossed over into into vendor world, we we'd have that idea of like the one application deployment a year for a business, a bit line of business, right? Like you'd have this project that had built up for three, four months and was now we're deploying it and now it's deployed and we're moving on with our lives. But I think like one commonality that we all have, like as panelists on this, we all live kind of in a continuous world, like all about the products that we represent, the things we do kind of are designed to help people continuously do the things that that we're trying to accomplish in little slices of the pie that we're working on. And I think that that's um, very comparative to how like the market is now and how the world is like we're not we're looking at ways to continuously evolve infrastructure and the way these environments grow and contract based on based on performance scale needs. Um, I think that we're in kind of the era of continuous things happening and it's all about how do we do that with the minimal risk how do we enable teams to do that faster how do we have people get less 2 a.m calls when, when something goes wrong with that but we are very much in the realm of of continuous evolution of the things that we do yeah i think i mean just adding to that we're building off what rachel was saying teams sort of seem to face two problems at the moment one problem is choosing the components in their system but then this other one is they're dynamically changing environments so they don't you know, they don't want to be rebuilding their environments every six months. But the most common thing I think that you see with teams now is going into environments and they tell you what they're running. It turns out that's not what they're running. And so in a dynamic environment, you know, they, they think they're running a particular version. They're running something completely different. In a dynamic environment that teams are now in, in a continuous deployment world, in a world where you're trying to get those features as quickly as possible to market, you have to accept that everything is going to be continuous. And therefore, anything which is unmanaged is absolutely a risky proposition. So whilst I wouldn't necessarily challenge teams to rebuild their entire environment from the ground up every six months, I think it's a really interesting idea that, you know, anything that you you think you can't do that with anything which is not managed is, is a really risky proposition now. So I want to just get back to just a fundamental question. You know, what does this mean is, you know, 
Is DevOps not working for most teams? I mean, it seems like we're seeing there's always solutions to problems, but what really isn't working now? What is it that's really difficult for teams? I'll take a stab. Um, I think that my, the scariest thing for me when you when we see these like larger DevOps transformation projects and like these larger, we're adopting DevOps is people focus on the forest of it. And they say like, there's a million things that we wanna do as part of this DevOps migration. And we end up bucketing all of these things into this DevOps project, instead of looking at it like prag pragmatically and saying, you know, what's what's my low hanging fruit? What are solvable problems that we can get a lot of agility, a lot of velocity off of, you know, like staying away from my own product, like looking at something like, like that Steve works on just cause I'm familiar with WeaveWorks, like solving the problem of how to, uh, how to continuously build Kubernetes clusters as code, have a, have a central point point of GitOps and being able to control that from there. Like these are solvable problems that get great velocity out of, out of uh, teams that are trying to solve how to continue to do that. Right. Especially when we talk as like continuously, how do we build, like it goes back to what I said at the beginning around tooling, like how do we start to adopt these tooling that let us solve these low hanging fruit problems often? I think it fails when people stop looking at low hanging fruit and they say, how am I going to pick every apple off of this tree? And, and more so, how am I going to pick every apple off of a hundred trees across 10 data centers? And then it just becomes an unsolvable problem. Uh, I think it fails when people don't focus on the tangible things they can solve in low hanging fruit. Interested in other people's opinions. That's just my, my take. Cody, was it you that said iterate and progress earlier in this in this conversation? Because I agree completely. If you can if you can iterate and progress in the correct direction, you'll you'll get you'll get benefits. But it's when you try and pick up the whole thing all at once and solve for all the complexity that things can kind of go wrong. Um, I'm going to shill for both of your products very briefly because um, I think I see some. There are two problems that I see people overcoming. The first is um, the security review process is like kind of a nightmare in almost every organization that I know. So one of the things that I think is really great about the launch darkly approach is like, hey, you know, my features, my code are out in production and I can do this kind of feature flagging approach to, to expose or not expose it to users. This means you're getting a lot of power out of the deployments that you make. And, um, you know, it, it, it simplifies DevOps to some extent to not have to do like every feature kind of a thing release independently. And then um, the other thing I'll just say about Kubernetes is that everyone is struggling with how to deal with Kubernetes in, in actual production and operation. It's, it's, it's unsolved in its totality. But the teams that I see getting Kubernetes workloads out to production are getting the benefits of like, I can change where those clusters run. I can scale them up. Um, if I can do it in one place in like a Kubernetes API compliant way, I can do it everywhere. And now all of a sudden I'm delivering on that thing that like, you know, the CTO said we we're going to do like five years ago, it's actually working. So, so uh, I do see progression. I just don't see like, you know, kind of full solution in a lot right. of places that, that Armory is operating in anyway. I feel like someone should chill for Armory too. I think um, CIC one of the most important elements that we see in people trying to build modern DevOps practices and having that capability is really a core element of being able to deliver software well. And so tools like Spinnaker are, um, I mean, there's plenty of ways you can build a CI CD pipeline, but Spinnaker is definitely one of the ones that we see modern shops adopting. And so I, I think, um, as Margaret said, like all, all of the tools that are represented by panelists here are really interesting in kind of modern development practices.
Yeah, just to join uh, sort of Margaret and Cody's point together, I think the the thing that really helps web teams get bogged down is when it's too big to bite. And what you need is a really good use case, a really good example that you can promote internally within the organization. And CD is a great way. Some progression along the path of CD really helps dev teams. When they start seeing it, it's easier to deploy. Whatever the application or service is, it's such a big proof point. And I always tell people that they should actually start with the application layer because that's the, that's the kind of... Um, fire uh, of excitement that will go through the rest of the organization when they see that you know yeah sure deploying infrastructure is really hard it's very very important but at the end of the day if you want all of your development teams on side and excited about this and motivated then show them deploying some applications using cd and they're just you know that's that's your marketing buzz internally <laughs> but I mean, to that point there's like a, there's a cool culture call out here right in the sense of like giving people wins right like i don't think we do that enough in 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 the tech world we're often focused on like these big enterprise problems but ultimately these are people these are people building these platforms and like the cd place is a great place to give yourself wins and to feel good about the work you're doing and have tangible things that you can show and say yeah like i was able to automate this this deployment process and make it move four times faster than it was before and we were able to do four times more right like I'm a big believer in, in giving teams wins and things that they can feel really good about because that's how they get excited. That's how they get curious to see how they can do more, how they can explore more. So it's like a, there's an interesting cultural angle there of like the creation of a winning feeling. I like that winning feeling. We do have some questions coming in. Joe, what are people asking about out there in trajectory land? All right, fantastic. Uh, well, we had an interesting comment from uh, Chris Felix, who had noted that finding people that also have development experience, uh, finding uh, operations people who also have experience in development is kind of difficult for most enterprises, and which kind of leads to the question, uh, you know, if an operations person has development experience, why wouldn't they just move to development? But anyway, uh, maybe the panelists could uh, address the challenges and offer possible solutions for finding these rare DevOps people. Steve, take the stage. Sure. Um, I mean, I think that is totally true. I mean, we've, we've had enterprise teams have been split for an incredibly long period of time. So it's totally possible for you to be at any point in your career and have no experience in one or the other. I think that's really the importance of of developing or delivering an application platform that we were referring to at the beginning, because that helps to remove a lot of the kind of complexities. So I think one um, good model that I see um, enterprise teams picking is to build a small capable application platform um, that will get the you know the jobs of deploying your applications looking after them observing them understanding them um, so just you know the start not your full enterprise platform and then you know circulating teams around that and building new services which use that platform and I think of that as being like you know a sort of um, uh, the little bit of grit that the pearl is going to grow around because that gets teams excited. It gives teams the, the uh, sort of capabilities and it lets you talk about that internally within the enterprise. Um, and then, you know, then you're in, then you've got enough skills and capabilities and personnel who are excited about it that you can then start to deploy it into wider groups and so forth. So that's sort of, I think, how you can build those skills internally. There's no doubt that those skills are and uh, you know uh, there's massive amounts of pressure and and interest in those skills uh, right now you're going to teach them <laughs> um i i don't i don't know a way around this like um 
Uh, I think you were spot on. If there's like an advanced team who figures out kind of the way to do it the new best way, and then you start to roll other teams onto that practice, it's it's the cloud tech team at Apple. It's the jet team at JPM. It's like there's some kind of innovation team that's going to show the new way to roll like new workloads out onto the new cloud target using a really standardized tool chain. The, the frustration will come that not all of the legacy stuff is going to work. It's not going to work. And you will not have like 100% adoption of one single way to get to production in pretty much any place like I've ever been. You're just looking for convergence and progression and efficiency and getting like new applications and features out to production. But, it's progress. It's not final destination on the journey. But there's no standardization. There's fragmentation. There's development experience issues. These are the broken parts. So do you need an innovation layer on top of the broken parts to fix the broken parts? Or does the broken parts need to be fixed with the innovation layer? You need to find pragmatic ways mm -hmm. um, to make progress against automating the toil away and achieving some repeatability in, in process and some standardization around skills and tooling. But like, you know, I'm never in any large enterprise, there's going to be a hundred ways all the different teams get their workloads out to, to different, you know, targets down to production. You're looking to whittle that down, improve it over time, converge on some things, um, and accept that it's maybe like an asymptotic goal to ever have everybody do ex everything exactly the same way, you know? But it's, you know, it's, it's, it's the, it's the behavior change angle or the introduction of a new behavior and a new path they might take. I, I loved your answer. I think that that's, that's so true. It's, it's the idea of, you can't have people prevent fire while they're fighting a fire, right? Like it's really hard to have an operations team who's in the mix, building systems, trying to keep an environment running. Also pausing all of that work to go and learn how to innovate. Cause this is like, these are new skills. Learning how to build in, in a CICD world is a new set of skills that not everybody came up in the game having. Um, and I think that when you have this team that's focused on innovation and focused on finding those low hanging fruit things that they can target and exploring the launch darklies of the world and the armories and the weave works and learning how to gradually and progressively improve their environments. You know, to, to Margaret's point, you're never going to get to a place where it's a hundred percent, the new cool way to do the thing, but you're going to get to a place where the harder problems are a little less hard and the easier problems don't exist anymore. And they've been replaced with a different kind of easy problem because you're just progressively making improvements. You'll fail when you say, I want to eliminate all of the problem. I'm, my goal of the DevOps is to eliminate all the thing and then you never achieve it and everyone becomes frustrated and bails on it because they never get they never get that win. They never feel accomplished in it. I see cloud native businesses with relatively new stacks able to do it all one way. I see teams and departments able to do it all one way. I see sets of services uh, that comprise like a whole application able to do it all one way. Um, so I think it's completely doable at that level and it is being done and done well. Um, a Patreon, like everybody does it one way. Netflix, you know, uh, does it all one way, but but most people exist like in the, in the Delta between that, you know, perfect new cloud business and a big enterprise. <laughs> you know, there's a lot that there, there's a lot to absorb here about what we're seeing in DevOps. One question though, that I'm wondering and how it's affecting DevOps now is the new 
the new focus on the software supply chain and security in the software supply chain. And we have an executive order from President Joe Biden. Uh, we have, uh, you know, we, we have lots of really terrible attacks that we've seen, solar winds in particular. So there's a lot of discussion about it. And I'm wondering how this is going, how this is starting to change how DevOps teams look at what they do and how it may actually help or, or hinder what, what they're trying to accomplish. How about we go to Rachel? Do you have any thoughts on the security angle? Is that something yeah. you all are looking at? at uh, yeah, and it, honestly, I think everyone's looking at it. I think that software provenance and software build materials are just going to be increasing parts of our conversation as we try to figure out um, how we, because apps really aren't, it's, it's applications today aren't built like they were maybe a decade ago where everybody builds a whole application. Like applications today are assembled and it's a collection of services, it's a collection of libraries, it's a collection of code that some, some you've written yourself and some you're pulling in from external sources. And the dependencies that exist in applications today are um, can, can be really massive. And so understanding where all your software has come from and understanding the provenance of all that is an increasing part of how we're going to be thinking about security. And it's really challenging, I think, for a lot of people to start this um, one, because I think we have this concept of like shift left that's happening and we want we want to move security from being like a gate at the end to something that's incorporated all the way through. Dave Stanky from Google used a phrase I really liked and he called it like smeared left, which I thought was good. So I think it, the responsibility is still over here, but it, it kind of moves throughout the organization. I, I like <laughs> I, I liked that as a, as a concept, but I think the way that we're going to get software security incorporated throughout the process is we really have to be thinking about the developer experience in this and making it easy for developers to choose to do the right thing, kind of having pre-approved libraries or curated sets of choices that they could be working in, good automations, the right defaults, good guardrails in place. I, I think we have to make it so that the development teams um, have security as a practice that's not hindering them, but is enabling them to build better software. Well, um, can I, can I ask, uh, you know, Cody, what do you, are, you know, how do feature flags, for instance, play a role in, in, in all of, you know, in software supply chain security? You know, I think it was, what's really interesting about like the feature flag world is is thinking that when I think a lot about like features, uh, my, my definition of this has changed quite, quite a bit, especially in, in recent years, right? Because I think that oftentimes the person consuming the feature might not actually be your typical customer that's coming in. So you run a large e-commerce website, the person who consumes a feature might very well not be the customer coming in from that website. It could be the security team who's wanting to make sure that your secrets management platform has been implemented correctly or that it's that it, it they're in the midst of changing secrets management platforms and that feature might not be one that your customers externally care about but it's certainly one that the security team cares about and i think about the way we roll out functionality it's like functionality is just another way of saying a feature it's just a, a different different way of thinking about it and i think we see feature flags and that concept shifting a little bit more to how are we exposing broader functionality into a platform you know using the security example when somebody wants to roll out secrets management for the first time, you know, and they want to have a smaller group of people receive that configuration, that's a way to create progression as opposed to just flipping it on for everybody at the same time, right? Like there's five of us on this call. We could group all of us together and have us being the ones who are getting that that secrets management configuration via via flag config. 
And there's there's one angle of that of saying, oh, like launch darkly is the greatest at doing this thing, but more thinking about like that DevOps style approach of how do I gradually allow people to adopt this? How do I gradually set this up so that I can validate that smaller groups are getting this before I drop this huge platform in front of everybody? Um, I think that people are looking at ways to have security or other adjacent aspects of our of our DevOps world um, be, have that same experience of progressive rollout and gradual rollout that is trackable, measurable, back, back outable, if that's a, a phrase. Back outable, schmear left and be, and be back outable. We're all, two, we're all two or three failed deployments from being schmeared left. So, <laughs> so uh, we only have a few minutes left, but I would go like to go uh, from Steve to Margaret and finish it with, with Rachel and Steve, I have a question about GitOps and all this. Mm -hmm. Sure. Uh, GitOps is really Kubernetes focused. And, yeah. uh, but the question is about, you know, when we think about infrastructure, you know, as code, there's mm -hmm. also now this, you know, this thinking about, you know, infrastructure as almost preparedness, as security, right? Yeah. Where there's like, yeah, yeah. and so, and it has the same principles. So, yeah. but how are you going to, you know, one of the questions I have is about how this, the synchronization of the software supply chain. You know, yeah. this seems to be a frontier that that I think very few people understand. And I'm curious in your thoughts on it. I mean, I, I think you can, if you abstract some of the parts of GitOps, what you're really talking about is being able to um, have a plan of record a det to determine the specific version and have a code against that, the SHA from Git that you're running in production. Um, and have a reconciliation loop. So ultimately a loop reporting back on that. And, and from what Rachel was saying, I think like the situation for software teams is that the complexity is ramping up and we actually know less about how to run things now than we did 10 years ago. As in, we're now running hundreds of services that are put together to create services and that just adds complexity. So, you know, there are lessons to be learned there. And I think as you think about security, what you're really talking about in the shift left situation is that anything where you don't know the precise version and you have that in a SHA or you have that in some sort of uh, Git configurate, and I'm specifically talking about the SHA, which provides you with security, then you know if you don't know the specific version you're supposed to be running in production, in testing, in dev, you want to shift that left um, so that at the end, end of the day, you have a sort of complete plan of record through the entire development pipeline. Um, and you have a reconciliation loop, an automated reconciliation loop, whether that's on Kubernetes or some other system, so that ultimately a computer system is comparing for you whether what you're running in each of those stages is what you're expecting to run. And right. that's going to bring security benefits, you know. Margaret, from the kitchen, quick. Um, I would say that the, the security question is real and um, it is an impediment to velocity in most of the organizations that we work with. Because what is happening now is people want a big red button that says no. Till security is satisfied, this is a no. And now we have to develop a process like, do we have the right licenses? Do we have a vuln? Is there like a patch we need to do? Do we know, like, do we know all the things? And then we can kind of manually let deployments roll. And we're at the beginning of the journey where we start to automate that and develop tooling around it and go from a big red manual button to a business process to tools that do the diff on the SHA you expect versus the SHA that you have running, right? In production, or if that's how you want to treat it. Like this is verified, security said yes to this one. 
we know all the dependencies, we know the libraries, there's no problem here, we can just roll. So we're at the beginning of that automation journey. And what I see most of the security teams asking for right now is give me like, you know, give me, give me like the no. You know? <laughs> I want to know. And then, and then, you know, slowly we're going to, we're going to, we're going to get better at the tools. Rachel, <laughs> let's, let's close it out. Shamir left. What are we, what are we seeing here? I, I'm thinking cloud-based IDEs where it's all programmed for you and you can work in the same environment as security, but I'm sure you have your own thoughts and perspective. I think as ever for the analyst answer, it's going to be, it depends. I think it's going to depend on your development shop. I think it's going to depend on where you're at in your progression um, in terms <sighs> of the specific tools and implementations you need. But I, I think in the end, it really does come back to making sure that you have made it as easy as possible for everyone to comply with what you want to happen. So like if it's, um, if, if people need to go fast, if they, if they have, if their goal and tasks are on going fast and on velocity, and you're also trying to incorporate security, you need to have those in alignment. Otherwise people are going to choose fast. Wonderful. Well, I want to thank everyone for showing up for the pancake breakfast. I want to thank our guests. Cody Diarklin, Rachel Stevens, Steve George, Margaret Francis. Thank you so much. And thank you very much to Launch Darkly, who made this breakfast possible. I've really enjoyed this conversation. It's been very lively. Thanks to all the people out there who asked your questions. I can't wait for the next pancake breakfast. Have a great conference at trajectory and let those spatulas fly. Let's give it all everyone a big hand. I really am very happy. Yeah. All right. Thanks, everyone. We'll talk soon. LaunchDarkly is a feature management platform that empowers all teams to safely deliver and control software through feature flags. By separating code deployments from feature releases, LaunchDarkly enables you to deploy faster, reduce risk, and iterate continuously. Thanks for listening. Subscribe on Simplecast to listen to more episodes on the new stack makers. Create and share your favorite audiogram using our Simplecast player. For more articles and great stories, go to the newstack.io.